Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within an echoey room in America. I'm sorry if this podcast is a little bit of an echo. I've got this big empty kitchen, which I wish I did not have. My my Valentine left me on Valentine's Day to go back to China, and I am in a place that we rented for about a month and a half during the time that we were here in Montana getting our youngest situated for university coming this fall and now that they're gone this place is empty i'm almost about ready to break out in song and singing that there's no sunshine when she's gone but i do have an echo when she's gone and that's why you might hear an echo a little bit in this podcast but hopefully you'll you'll it'll it'll go away a little bit i because i have two challenges right now i have a, a my my phone which i always do my recordings with right but my recordings are worse now than they were before because the phone that I have, um, I have to use a USB-C adapter for this little string microphone that I usually just attach to my lapel and go for it. But I've been noticing in most of my podcasts that there's a p, like a P, a pop, every time I say P. And so I thought maybe one of the ways to get rid of that is to lower this mic down on my shirt. If anybody listening to this has any ideas how I can have a better recording using my phone, I don't want to buy a new device. I, I'm okay with downloading software as long as it's free software. The software that I currently have on my phone is free and the microphone that I have uh, is just some cheap off-brand. So it's not like a really nice Rhodes mic or anything like that. It's just a cheap off-brand mic that I can use to attach to my lapel when I'm interviewing people, when I'm talking, or when I'm driving down the road. So that's the reason for that. However, it has to be attached to this little small attachment. It's a USB-C device, and I think that the quality is much lower because now I'm getting those pops in my peas. Um, so I kind of, I'm, I'm in between a rock and a hard place right now because in order to make this room sound not as echoey, I can put the mic closer to my mouth, but the closer I get the mic to my mouth, the more you have that popping sound, which I hate. And I'm sure some of you hate as well. But today, if you're listening to this on Purim, I'm actually, we're gonna be posting this on Purim. So today is Purim. And this is a podcast that I'm super excited about because it's probably covering one of the most mysterious of all the Jewish holidays out there. And like I said, I, I haven't really been following Jewish holidays. Um, I do have a lot of friends that follow religiously Jewish holidays, but Purim is one of those holidays that you know I want to stop and just take recognition. The Bible tells us to remember the, the, the Jewish holidays that God has given to his people. And so I think that we do a great disservice when we ignore the holidays of the Bible. Now, I don't think that we have to follow them religiously, and I don't think that you have to do them in order to be saved, in order to have salvation, but I do think that there is power and meaning in those holidays for us as Christians 
to learn, to know, and to understand more about God and why He gave those specific holidays to His people. So in honor of Purim, we have a special podcast for you where we want to share some of the deepest mysteries of Purim revealed in the book of Esther in ways that I think most likely you have never heard before. I mean, do you think you know the book of Esther? Because I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through Bible studies on the book of Esther and they didn't learn jack squat. Or maybe they learned something, but not about the stuff that I'm going to be sharing. Like I'm going to be sharing stuff about Esther that I think many of you that have even studied Esther in a Bible study setting have never heard before. So for Purim 2021, I want to cover some of the most mysterious questions found in the book of Esther. For instance, during this podcast, I'm going to be asking, do you know why Esther is the only book in the Bible with an Iranian name? Or why Jesus never referred to the book of Esther in any way, shape, form, or fashion that we know of? And do you think you really know why Haman hated Mordecai so much? I mean, Haman hated Mordecai, not just because Mordecai was a Jew, which is what most people say. So if you walk, so many people walk away from an Esther Bible study and you can ask them after that Bible study, why did uh, Haman hate Mordecai so much? Oh, well, because he wouldn't bow. Oh, because he was a Jew. Those are only parts of the reason. There's a much deeper reason that goes back to a secret family history that Haman had. And it was the root cause of his deep hatred for Mordecai. Do you know why so many Jewish teachers in history never wanted to have Esther in the canonical Bible, in the Old Testament? And, and there were many Christians that also believe it shouldn't be in the Bible with the Old or New Testament. Do you know why the king issued an order to kill all Jews and never took it back? See, that's something that most Christians don't know. The king never took back his edict to kill all Jews. He, he never changed his mind. Most Christians don't know that. They think that, oh yeah, well, at the end of the day, Mordecai and Esther, they turned out to be the heroes. Haman was killed by the king and the king then told everybody to leave the Jews alone because of his love for Esther and his respect for Mordecai. No, he never changed his mind after he sent out an order to all of the Persian kingdoms to kill all of the Jews. Most people have never heard that. My hope for this special Purim podcast is to share about the book of Esther in a way that you most likely have never heard before. And Miles Weiss, buddy, if you are out there, I wish I could do this podcast together with you because I know that you would open up a whole world of new information for this book that not even I know about. If you're not familiar with Rabbi Miles Weiss, he's one of my heroes out there. I really love working together with him and connecting with him. We do a podcast together quite Frequently, we're not doing a podcast on this special podcast because of my poor planning. I'm a very poor planner when it comes to podcasting. And so I never reached out to him in time and I want to get this podcast up for the day of Purim. So Miles, buddy, miss you. Wish you were here. Sorry for the echo. Sorry for you not being on here. But on the evening of Purim, for those of you that don't know this, 
The Jews like to celebrate with a festival, a festival meal, and it's a meal that I could probably take part in. It's called the Sudat Purim, and it's held with red wine, as I've learned, taking center stage. Now, anybody that knows me knows that I love red wine, I love everything about it, I love its history, I love the stories. I, I, even more than drinking it, I love being in vineyards together with winemakers and walking their fields together with them and having them telling me about the, the history and the hardship and the challenges and the beauty and the gift of wine. Wine is referred to so many times in the Bible and the more I learn about wine, the more I realize why. There's such a beauty to the, the, the drink. It's more than just a beverage. Uh, for me, it is an experience. And it's one of the things that my wife and I really cherish in life is our enjoyment of wine. And so one of the things that you see on, on Purim is that red wine takes center stage, which is very pertinent for this, this topic of Purim. And I'm going to tell you why here in a minute, but one of the things that it's a little bit of a downfall uh, for the meal that's celebrated on Purim is that many Jews are encouraged to drink more wine than usual on this day. And I'm told that it stems from a statement that's found in the Talmud attributed to Rabbi Rava, who says that one should drink on Purim until he can no longer distinguish between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordecai, which means drink until you are unable to distinguish between the cursed Haman and the blessed Mordecai. And I, I really believe that, that wine is really, really good for your body, but if you drink too much, you abuse it. And the Bible speaks out very, very plainly against that. And I, I love wine and I never advocate drinking too much, but what the reason why red wine, I believe in some ways, takes center stage during the time of Purim has a lot to do with the Persian Empire. Now, you may not know this, but there's something different about uh, the book of Esther that is different than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Esther is the only book in the Bible that is written by a, an Iranian princess. Now, throughout this, I'm probably going to use the word Iran instead of Persia. I might use them interchangeably, and you might think that you know I'm doing that uh, in ignorance. And there, there, I'm sure there's going to be people that will write to me and say. Uh, it's not actually Iran. You, the borders of Persia were, and whatever you know, that information they want to throw my way. But Persia has always been known as Persia since the days of King Cyrus, the founder of Persia. It was changed from Persia to Iran uh, during the reign of Hitler. And Hitler made a very close relationship together with the Shah of Iran. I talk about this specifically in Jesus in Iran. The book Jesus in Iran is a book that I wrote the entirety of in Iran, just like the entirety of Esther was written in Iran. So I traveled to Iran on several different occasions, working together with the church in order to write the book Jesus in Iran. We are the only distributors of that book. So if you would like that book, Jesus in Iran is only available through the Back to Jerusalem website. You can get that right now. It might be available in other places where they bought them used, like on Amazon or something like that. But if you're going to buy it brand new, the only place to get it is through Back to Jerusalem. The reason for that, if I can just take a little side note, I know many of you are ready to dive into these mysteries of Esther and I'm taking way too long to get there. I apologize, but let me just share this really quick. 
the reason why we didn't use a publisher for Jesus in Iran was because I lost the entire manuscript. I had written the entire book one time through with all of the references. And at one point I got stopped by the Iranian police. And I, I, I thought that they were going to check my computer. So I deleted all the files on my computer and everything that I had, uh, had saved, I deleted with the exception of one thumbnail drive that I thought that I had the entire copy on. I was wrong. It's the second time that that's happened to me where I've lost an entire manuscript, an entire book that I was finished with. I lost it all. And so basically, as soon as I got out of Iran and flew back into Dubai, I had to sit down and rewrite from memory as much as I could. And to be honest, I think it turned out better. But because I was not able to get those references in order to have it properly published, I wrote it as it was and we published it as Back to Jerusalem. So I do give some references, but not a lot of references. And some of the things that I wrote, I wrote a lot of the stuff from memory and I apologize for that. But anyway, this, this trip or trip series of trips that I took into Iran, I traveled all around Iran, meeting together with Iranian Christians taught me so much about the Bible and what the Bible says about Iran in the ways of Persia. But Hitler had made a connection together with the Shah of Iran and they, the Iranians were told that they were the children of Aryans and that's what Iran means, land of the Aryans. And so the Nazis contributed to many books for the library of Iran at that time and, and in the correspondence together with Persia, um, Germany changed the name from Iran, uh, from Persia to Iran and the Shah of Iran also referred to it himself as Iran. So I'm going to refer to it as Iran because I believe that the name was changed from Persia to Iran to take away the history of the people. God has a special calling, I believe, for the people of Iran. And one of the ways that the enemy steals that from you is he steals your history. And one of the things about Iran today is that there are no wineries. There are no wineries or winemaking that takes place in Iran. Since 1979, winemaking has died in Iran, which is a tragedy because wine has history. And for those of you that did not know, the ancient capital of Iran is Shiraz. And the grape Syrah or Shiraz uh, that comes from France, Australia, New Zealand, America. It's the seventh most grown grape in the world when it comes to wines. Shiraz is named after the city of Shiraz. The Iranians used to be some of the best winemakers in all of the world. And the reason why is because they were influenced by the Jews. Where the Jews go, winemaking trade also follows. I don't know if you knew that or not. And in fact, if you look at where the... Um, oldest winemaking heritage is in the world today. It's on the border of Iran in Armenia. And so the Armenians are considered to be the oldest winemakers in the world, having gotten their winemaking from Ur. Have you ever heard of Ur? A little city that Abraham had to pass through at one time. We see, whenever we see the Babylonian Empire, um, the, the Persian Empire, the Greeks, they all got their winemaking skills directly from, or the Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, directly from 
the, the Jews and the Greeks got it indirectly from the Jews. But if you look at the oldest winemaking culture in the world, which are the Armenians, where is Armenia? It's at the base of Mount Ararat. What was the first thing that Noah did when he came off the ark? He made an altar to thank God and then he planted a vineyard. We, we see that that's the, that was kind of a, a something of supreme importance right away was to plant that vineyard. And so with that vineyard, we see the spread of winemaking throughout the empires that were either uh, influenced by the Jews or that took the Jews as captives. So one of the things that I think is quite amazing about Purim with red wine taking center stage is one of the most famous wines in the world is Shiraz. And the Shiraz wine comes from Iran. Today, it's no longer made in Iran. If you think about Shiraz or Syrah, most people believe that it originated and came from um, France. And in fact, if you go on like Wikipedia and do a generic search, they'll show that all of today's Syrah or Shiraz uh, variants come from a main branch in France, but the French Shiraz comes actually from Iran. But Esther and this, this celebration of Purim, I think is something that is fascinating that we as Christians have to know. And during this podcast, before you leave this podcast, my hope is that you will have heard something about the book of Esther that you did not know before. And when you sit in one of those Bible studies about Esther, I pray that this podcast comes back to your mind so that you can contribute to the richness of people's understanding of this amazing book, as well as this holiday of Purim. Esther is one of the strangest books in the Bible. It, it has this pivotal story of God's people and Iran. And Iran, whether you know this or not, plays a central role. I mean, everything about the book of Esther is written in Iran. To fully understand the book of Esther, one must first understand the Iranian context in which the book of Esther was written. Many scholars have argued that the book of Esther should have never been canonized. And the reason they say that is because the, the, this book of the Bible does not have a Jewish name. That's one of the things. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Esther is not a Jewish name. It's the only book in the entire Bible with an Iranian name, a Persian name that many people believe means star. And if you are to take note of the uniqueness of the book, you'll also remember, or I guess you can't remember an event that never took place, but you will, you will find, if you try to search, that Jesus never quotes from the book of Esther. The book of Esther is never referred to in any of the other books of the Bible. None of the main characters in the book of Esther pray. I mean, the more you start looking at the book of Esther, the stranger it gets. There are no supernatural miracles performed by God. Supernatural meaning the temporary suspension of natural law type of miracles. Now, what happened for the saving of the, the Jewish people, of course, you can call that a miracle, but that is explained. It's not a supernatural miracle. Nowhere in the entire book is God mentioned. Nowhere are there miracles. Nowhere are there uh, anybody, is, there, is there anybody praying. God doesn't lead anyone to speak to anyone, unlike Moses, uh, unlike so many of the prophets throughout the Bible. 
God does not give any signs to anyone. We do not see Esther keeping with any of the kosher laws. We do not see Esther doing any of the things that normal Jews, or I, I should say conservative Jews, would be caught doing. Uh, we don't see her openly celebrating any of the Jewish festivities like Purim, which is based, of course she couldn't have practiced it, but I'm just saying that there are no Jewish holidays that Esther is actually following in any way. She's the heroine of the story, and she is selected because of her beauty, not her piety. It's, I mean, this book of the Bible, Esther, is so far from all the other religious traditions that many Christians might actually feel uncomfortable if they were to really look at the details of the book. Uh, the Qumran community, which one of the Jewish desert communities that kept scrolls of different books of the Bible, never included the book of Esther in their library. And this is the kicker. The Jews who wrote the Greek Septuagint were so uncomfortable with the fact that there were no prayers in the book of Esther that they actually artificially inserted prayers from Mordecai because it made them feel uncomfortable that there were no prayers in the book of Esther. Guys, this is one of the, this is one of the secrets that most Christians don't realize when looking at the Jewish canonical book of Esther. Kudos to the Jews for keeping it. When we look at God using an Iranian king to stop the destruction of the Jewish people, we have to remember that prior to this event, the Jews had turned their backs on God. And as a result, they were taken as slaves into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, which is just north of Iran. And they were set free by the founder of Iran, King Cyrus. So King Cyrus, during the time of Esther, went and freed the Jews. So the Jews were still relatively foreigners in the land of Persia. But there was a new king now that was ruling over Iran, the grandson of Cyrus, King Xerxes. And he had his trusted advisor, and both of these guys play a center role in this Bible as it unfolds, almost like a Shakespearean play. But it's important to remember who Haman is in the book of Esther. Because a lot of people believe that Haman didn't like the Jews because the, uh, Mordecai refused to bow, but that's not the case. When thinking about this, just, let me back up just for a second, because when thinking about this as a holy book, I want you to, re I want you to think of Esther's role. In many ways, she's, th she's thought of as a feminist heroine. Right, An individual who at first is recognized for her beauty, but then starts to show her piety, her commitment, her tenacity, her trustworthiness, her loyalty to her people, her strength, her cunningness, her understanding, her ability to manipulate the king, approach the king, and get the king to do what he wants him to do. But ah, it's, not, it's not as holy as you might think because of it, it's sandwiched in so many other holy books. Let's be honest about what's happening here before we get to Haman and his family. What's happening here is Esther is being prepared from the beginning of the book to please a man who is no longer happy with his wife. His wife doesn't do exactly as she's told, so he's not happy with her, gets angry at her, and he's like, okay, it's no problem, I have a harem. He's got so many different women that can please him 
please him. I was going to go into more detail in the pleasing sector, but I shall not for the purpose of this podcast. But think about this. Basically, what we're reading about in the book of Esther is American Idol porn style. This, this is the king doing tryouts for who's going to be his number one woman by having them prepared for him and then brings them in to, to, to lay with him, to sexually be with him. So this is basically, this is not the most honorable way to, to gain foot into the palace, but this is exactly how Esther gets entrance into the palace. She's a part of the tryout community. Outwardly, she looks stunning, I'm assuming, from what the Bible says of her beauty. So she's absolutely stunning. So she's brought in, as well as a lot of other women, and her job is to compete with all these other women to be able to have a place with the king. This is a divorced king, or a, a, a king that dispose, disposes, disposes, disposes of his queen, because she doesn't do as she's told. And because she doesn't do as it's told, no problem, I've got replacements waiting in line to take your place. And one of those replacements was Esther. So Esther's in this line that's a little bit gross to think about the details of it. But this is the culture, this is the time. What I like about the Bible is it doesn't try to paint over the, the, the ways that God moved through his people. I mean, Moses, all of his faults are laid out on a table. David, all of his faults are laid out on a table. Peter, John, all of their faults are laid out on the table. The Bible doesn't make sinless any of its, its heroes. It, tell, it goes into great detail and even back-breaking uh, um, backflips in order to show you that these individuals that God used are not perfect. So... Let me get back because this is so important. I don't want to waste time. I know some of you might be ready to fall off. I mean, you've already almost a half an hour into this podcast. You might be listening on a, on a road trip and your road trip may not be that long. You're like, come on, Eugene, get to the point. I want to hear this information. I want to share it with you. So please hang on. If you have to put it on pause and come back, do not miss the rest of this podcast because the things that are in this podcast, I believe are different than anything most of you have ever heard as it pertains to the holiday of Purim and the book of Esther. So let's get back to one of the main villains of the story. It's important to know that one of the main villains, that one of the people that piques our interest in the book is Haman. And Haman, it's important to know, hates, hates with a passion Mordecai. And throughout the, throughout the book, it's very easy to understand why Christians believe the way that they do because the book does point out that Mordecai did not kneel before Haman. <clears throat> he did not pay the respect to Haman that Haman was due and felt due, and he felt personally slighted by Mordecai. And so there is something in our brain housing group that tells us that, oh, well, this is the reason why Mor that Mordecai is not really liked by Haman. But that's not the root reason. The root reason can be found in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. You ever notice how the Bible gives us great details about whose father was whose father and who beget who, and you can almost fall asleep reading about the genealogy of people in the Bible? 
It seems like it's worthless, right? It's not. It's all there for a reason. From the birth of Christ and his lineage into seeing God called David and Abraham, from God rise, raising up Isaac and Jacob, we see that genealogy has a big part to do with not just fulfilling the promise of God, but also to be used as a touchstone to look back upon later on in Scripture, to know that when prophecies come true, we are able to look back and see exactly how God moved through the genealogies, even for those members of our family tree that fail. So if you are a member of a family tree that's an absolute failure, know that God can graft you back in to the vine and use you. And it's just as if you were designed that way. Well, this chapter 3 of Esther verse 1 points back to one of the darkest times, I believe, in Jewish Christian history. Because you see, Haman was an Agagite, which, if you don't know, does explain his deep-rooted hatred for Esther's cousin Mordecai. Why? Well, one, Haman the Agagite did not know that Esther was a Jew, but he did know that Mordecai was a Jew. And he didn't just know that Mordecai was a Jew. We are told in the book of Esther that Mordecai comes from the line of Kish, from the tribe of Kish. He was a Benjamite. This is where it gets saucy. Because you see, if we go back in history for the family history of Haman and the family history of Mordecai, they actually intersected several hundred years before. Where Haman would not have even existed to even threaten the Jews if King Saul would have carried out the will of God and what God told him to do. Let me tell you why. Do you remember a people in the Old Testament called the Amalekites? The Amalekites are a nomadic people, meaning that they traveled around in the desert and they regularly attacked the Jewish people. They were, they, they were like leeches. They, didn't really, they were like Vikings. They didn't really want to work or plow or farm. What they wanted to do is they wanted to roam around in the desert like the Arabs did under Muhammad and go and rob, rob and rape those that actually do produce something of value. And they are thought to be the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see something very interesting here. And I believe it's something that a lot of people that want to attack the Bible bring up. 1 Samuel chapter 15. When you understand the book of Esther and you understand the deep hatred of Haman, you start to understand that God is not as cruel as he seems in 1 Samuel chapter 15. When God clearly appoints Saul as the king of Israel and then commanded him to lead his people against the Amalekites and destroy every living thing. Saul was ordered to kill every man, every woman, every child. It says this, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. That 
is dark. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I would not want to imagine, I, you know, my background is in the military. I would not want to imagine God himself telling me to go and slaughter babies, innocent children, suckling. I mean, God is saying, kill everything. Scorched earth policy here. I want their men killed. I want their kids killed. I want their ox killed. I want their goldfish killed. I want their dog and their cat, their family hamster. I want them annihilated and wiped off the face of the earth. Why did he do that? We learn the answer in the book of Esther. You see, as an Agagite, Haman was naturally disposed to hate the Jews. Because his great-great-great-grandfather was King Agag. That's where we get the name Agagite. King Agag was the leader of the Amalekites that God said, destroy all of them. But King Saul was like, you know what? Here's my trophy, King Agag. So King Agag was allowed to live long enough, we can understand, to be able to have offspring. And one of his offspring was Haman. Was, and Haman was naturally disposed to hate the Jews because of the entire annihilation of his tribe members by the Jewish people. In King Xerxes' court, Haman was the equivalent of what we would call like a prime minister or a chief of staff if you're from America. And everyone was to bow down before Haman. And everyone did, except for Mordecai. But that was not his hate. Mordecai was a Jew, and already in Haman's eyes, Mordecai was, the, was, was a bad person. But Mordecai was the worst kind of Jew. He was the tribe of Kish. From the tribe of Kish, he was a Benjamite. When I saw this, that Mordecai, in the book of Esther, when you see the, the book of Esther saying that Mordecai is from the tribe of Kish, guess what the third most visited city in all of the Middle East is? Some of you might be listening to this and not know. There's a city in Iran called Kish, even to this day. And it is, an, it is open for trade. I've been there many times. This city of Kish, I don't know where the name comes from, but I find it very odd that it comes from Persia, from Iran, where Mordecai became one of the top leaders. And today we still have this island, which is the third most after uh, Dubai and one of the more well-known areas in um, the Middle East, known as uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Sheikh, Sharm el-Sheikh, I believe it's called. It's I've never been there. Uh, I've been to Egypt, but I've never been to Sharm el-Sheikh, which is this uh, holiday retreat in Egypt. But Dubai is number one. Sharm el-Sheikh, I believe, is number two, and the number three before the pandemic was the Isle of Kish. And I've been to Kish many times, and I just find it interesting that the tribe of Kish is where Mordecai comes from, and both of these are in Iran, just as we see the, the grape Shiraz that is made for Shiraz wine. We see these connections intertwining with modern-day Iran if we pay attention. But here we have the descendants of Saul in Mordecai, again, facing the tribe of the Amalekite king, again. This is a conflict that would not have been happening a second time if King Saul had been obedient 
to God's commands. You see, God was trying to eliminate the Amalekites from the face of the earth so that there would not be more death in the future with the Jews and with the Amalekites. The Amalekites practiced. Now, today, one of the reasons why the idea of killing small children churns my stomach is not because I'm more secularized and the world has taught me how certain things in the Bible are brutal and barbaric. No, the opposite. All of the ideas that we have today for human rights, animal rights, and the way we treat one another come from Christian nations that led the way on writing the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention could not and was not written in any Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist nation. Definitely not in a secular nation like China, Cuba, North Korea. God forbid, can you imagine North Korea writing the Geneva Convention? What would be allowable and what would not be allowable would be very interesting to see from, from North Korea. No, guys, the Amalekites, you have to remember that they were a tribal group that sacrificed their own children to their gods. They were extremely brutal during their time, not just to their enemies, but to each other. Like the Vikings, they, they would sacrifice small children in some of the most brutal ways. Going to build a new house? Better put a child in your foundation. Did something that you need God's help for, for crops, rain, whatever? You better offer a freshly born child. It's one of the reasons why the sacrifice of Isaac was so important is that that sacrifice of Isaac, what Abraham was about ready to do with Isaac, all of the surrounding tribes understood and agreed with. But what they did not see coming was a just God coming down and saying, do not lay a hand on that boy. That's what the Amalekites did not have. They had no one in their tribe to tell them, do not lay. If you think that there is just something inside of you that makes you more uh, kind towards your fellow human being, you, you do not understand history. And because of disobedience from Saul, we now have Haman. Haman, the Agagite, is now on the prey or, or, or on the prowl to hunt down and kill every Jew. So what the Jews did to his people, he is now going to do to theirs. Do you see that? This is a part of the book of Esther that most people don't see. That this is not just a hate for the Jews. No, this goes much deeper. This is revenge genocide. You committed genocide on my people, now we will commit genocide on your people. Mordecai represented to Haman the misery of his ancestors. So Haman took himself to the Iranian king and asked him to commit genocide on the Jewish people. And the Iranian king agreed, and even worse, he signed Haman's decree. Thus, a decree was sent out throughout the entire Iranian empire, which has enveloped all of the Jewish lands. And all of the people from the Jewish race were to be eliminated from the face of the earth. 
because of the efficiency of the communication system that was invented by the Iranians, it was only a matter of time before every kingdom knew about this plan and forced Hammond's scheme. Esther had been chosen to be the queen of Iran. Oh, by the way, if you didn't know that, I said efficiency of their, of their postal system. You may not know, but the postal system that we now practice today originated in Iran. So the Iranians are the ones that first invented this idea of mail being sent around that could be delivered from kingdom to kingdom in the same way that we have it practiced today. Of course, in a much more advanced form, but its origins come from Iran. But you have Esther, who's been chosen to be the queen of Iran, without the court knowing she was a Jew. Not even Hammond knew that. She was living as an Iranian. She spoke like an Iranian. She acted like an Iranian. And obviously, she must have looked like an Iranian. Beneath her royalty and beauty, she, as the queen of Persia, was a Jew. When Esther's cousin heard about the order approved by the king to exterminate all of the Jewish people, he sent a message to Esther. The Bible says this. I'll read it directly from Esther chapter 4. He gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go unto the king to make supplication unto him and make request before him for her people. Then Esther spoke to Hattach and gave him a message unto Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know whatsoever, whether man or woman shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called. There is one law for him, but he be put to death, except those whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, and he may live. So Esther saying, Dude, I can do this. But if I go to the king without him summoning for me, I am to be killed. And the only way I'm not going to be killed is if the king himself offers me amnesty. Here we see this is no small matter. The Iranian king was known to have a harsh temper. I know that you might think, well, you know, she's hot. He, of course, is going to save her. He might, she, she might be a beauty but he's got other women to replace her and he's got a really bad temper. temper. Have you ever seen the, the movie 300? If you ever watch the movie 300, it's kind of this dramatized version of when King Xerxes, this is the husband of, of Esther, goes and raids Greece and wants to take over uh, Europe. And uh, he is known that when he tries to go in and attack Greece, he crosses this channel uh, between Asia and Europe, this little channel that can be found but, uh, there at um, uh, Constantinople. Constantinople was the, the English word for, or, or the Christian word before there was a, in, in Istanbul. So there's this, there's this area between Asia and Europe where the, the land is not so far apart and the, the Persians under King Xerxes come up with this plan to create bridges. So the engineers come and they create bridges with the army to make a way for the army to go from the uh, Asian continent into Europe. By the way, if you don't know this, Persians are Asians, not Middle Easterners. Or, sorry, wrong, 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 wrong. Erase that, scratch that from your memory. Persians are Asians, not Arabs. So 
uh, Persians are not Arabs. Uh, Arabs from the Middle East, places like Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, uh, Egypt, um, even though Egypt is on the African continent, the majority of Egyptians today are Arabic. They speak Arabic. Persians are Asians. They are not. So they're coming from Asia, going into Greece, going into Europe, and a big storm hits and destroys their bridge. Xerxes' temper goes off. He is so ticked that he slices off the head of his engineers and orders his army to go out into the ocean with whips and to whip the waves in punishment for disobeying Xerxes himself. He believes himself to be godlike and his anger is not tempered by anything other than maybe beauty because we see that he does not use that anger against Esther. But Esther's taking a very real chance by approaching him. So Esther's fear of approaching him is not without pro proper protocol and is completely justified. But Mordecai sent an even more stern message to Esther saying, do not think to yourself, and I'm going to read this one directly from the Bible, 4, 13 and 14. Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Upon seeing the desperation of the situation and the urgency of what Mordecai was saying to her, Esther decides to act. And she even says this, if I die, I die. That is bravery. That is almost her knowing that she's going to die. She knows, dude, I'm probably going to die from this, but if I die, I die. I have no other choice. The Iranian empire at that time was massive and all of the Jews were going to be annihilated. The Iranian empire at that time controlled Egypt, present day Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, and India. This was a massive empire and nothing traveled faster than the Iranian postal system, probably better than the American postal system. Messages would be sent out on riders, kind of like the Pony Express, if any of you ever like to watch Westerns, which I do. They were sent out on riders that would ride like the Dickens until their, their horse was dead tired and they had um, stations that were planned along the way for a horse to run flat out. So there were from a horse would run, it would be measured how fast an Arabian horse, which are some of the fastest horses. I grew up raising horses, riding horses, and Arabians are fast. Unfortunately, my family raised Appaloosa, why I have no clue, because I had one chance, one time to ride one Arabian, and I never forgot it. That thing ran like the wind, gave me a rush, and I loved it. But they would calculate, the Persians calculated how far the, the horses could run from station to station and they would set up those stations and there would be fresh horses at each station so that when a, when a rider would come in with a running horse full speed into that station, he would pass on the post to a fresh horse that would then run to the next station. So it was this great system that had been put in place to go throughout all of the Iranian empire. And then we have the conversation between the king and Esther. Now, 
the Iranian king realizes that he signed a decree while being fooled by Haman. So there was no way the king could take it back. That decree that he signed for Haman was signed for good forever, and it could never be changed, not even by the king himself. This is something that most Christians miss when they're reading in the book of Esther. The king could not reverse his own decision. And we see that the king, even the king himself, could not say, wow, Esther, I'm sorry, your people are going to be annihilated. Guard, go tell everybody in the kingdom that that first order that I issued is fake. This next one is real. Because the people in the kingdom knew that if the king ordered an, an edict that was to go throughout the entire kingdom, everybody knew that if something came down that contradicted it, it could not have been from the king. Because a king's orders could not be reversed or contradicted even by the king himself. Because that would insinuate that the king made a mistake on his first try and that would show that he indeed is mortal and maybe not the son of heaven as everybody thought. You see, the Jews were ordered to be annihilated by everybody in the kingdom. And there was nothing Esther could do, Mordecai could do, or the king could do to change that order. The order had already been left out, had already left out. So what happened? The king issued what's equivalent to in America, the United States of America, the second amendment, the right to bear arms. So he told everybody in the kingdom, you can kill a Jew, but then he told all the Jews, you can defend yourself. You can pick up a weapon and if they come for you, you can kill them in self-defense. A lot of readers do not recognize what took place here. They do not recognize that this was an ordained order from the king for those inside the kingdom, the right to bear arms. They had the right to bear arms and the king was saying, I can't stop people from trying to kill you, but I can give you the right to fight back. It's what the second amendment does. Even if those that are trying to kill you are from the king's palace itself. So the Jews gathered together and they fought against those who attacked them. It's kind of hard to kill and, and, and take from those that are defending themselves. This is one of the things that I believe is really important for us as Christians to know about this book of Esther. To know the history of the families to know that this book was not really quoted in any other book of the Bible because it doesn't really fit in in so many ways. But it tells the story. Jesus himself is a result of what we learn about in the book of Esther. So even though Jesus is not quoted as saying anything, which means it does not necessarily mean that he didn't, it just means that it was never written down if he did. But his existence gives testimony to the book of Esther by itself. 
because without Esther, there would not have been a tribe of David. Without a tribe, or, with or a continuation in the lineage of David. Without a continuation in the lineage of David, we would have seen the stopping of the prophecy that Jesus was coming from the lineage of David. Purim is a time for us as Christians to know that if you do not do what God calls you to do today, God can still use you, but your children and your children's children and their children might one day have to face the demons that you chose to ignore. God tells us to do things that we may not be comfortable with for a purpose, for a reason. And the book of Esther, I believe, gives us the reason for one of the most dark moments in the Bible that's not easy to explain. It also tells us about a deep-seated hatred inside of Haman that was more than just the prideful acknowledgement of these Jews are not bowing before me. It was genocide. It was revenge genocide. We also see very popular characters in the Bible that show up throughout history, like King Xerxes himself. And we see a book of the Bible named after an Iranian princess with an Iranian name, where the entire book of the Bible takes place in Iran. I don't have any Syrah with me tonight, so I will not be drinking wine or celebrating with anybody for the day of Purim. I will be at a church, a local church here, celebrating with local members as we go through the book of Exodus. I don't even think Purim will even be mentioned tonight as I go into my Bible study. But I want to pray that everybody that listens to this podcast, take a moment, read about Purim yourself, maybe even do a celebration with your family. And may the elements of this podcast continue to enrich your mind so that your life will be more full in service to Christ. I want to thank you so much for joining us for another Back to Jerusalem podcast. May you enjoy this special day of Purim. God bless.